Welcome, welcome to Linen Suit and Plastic Tie, the podcast where we unlock the power of storytelling by talking to expert storytellers in a variety of different and unique fields about how storytelling has affected their personal lives and careers. I'm Gorv. And I'm Kevin. Hey, Kev, you know, we've been talking about comic books a lot on this show, and this episode's going to be no different. Uh, but Kev, have I ever told you the story about how the Fantastic Four came to be? No, you actually haven't. Great, it's a good one. So the year was 1961, and Stan Lee was about to quit Marvel Comics. He was kind of getting burnt out, and he was ready to leave. And he went in to quit, And but the publisher at the time, before he started talking, said, you know, uh, Justice League is doing really well right now. We need a superhero team up. And Stan Lee left his office and didn't quit. He was still planning on quitting, but his wife convinced him out of it. His wife said, you know, if you're gonna quit, why not make it the way you want to do it? Forget about the rules, forget about all the reasons you've been burnt out. Create a team of superheroes that you want to see. So Stanley went out and he created the Fantastic Four. He made a team of brand new characters that had one fundamental difference. They had no secret identities. The Fantastic Four were known to the world as who they were. And this was revolutionary at the time. Well, I think this story really speaks to the uniqueness of Stan Lee and of Marvel. Um, you know, something we talk about a lot is uh, authenticity in storytelling, uh, not just uh, in the sense of telling truth, but also as a storyteller, staying true to yourself, your style, what you want to create and the message you want to tell. This story is a really great segue into our uh, conversation with our guest today. Um, so today we are talking to Reed Tucker. Right now he is a journalist and author for the New York Post. He is also author of a book called Slugfest. Reed is really an expert and authority on the comic rivalry that is Marvel versus DC and Slugfest, the book, will soon uh, be adopted into uh, a TV series with the same name, exactly produced by the Russo brothers, and it will be narrated by Kevin Smith. So, Kev, why don't we get started and let's start the read. To start us off, Reed, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? Man, I wish it were more interesting. I, and I see these people who like write their memoirs at age 25 and they've been like held up at gunpoint and smoke crack and stuff like that. I have nothing, I have nothing like that. I grew up in Virginia and I went to school at the University of North Carolina and studied journalism. And then right after college, I moved to New York City uh, where I've lived ever since. Um, I've, um, I guess I've worked at d different publications throughout the years, but for the last, 15 years. I've worked at the New York Post uh, covering mostly movies, which kind of spurred my interest in the, in the whole Marvel versus DC topic. Because, you know, when you cover movies in the last decade, it's like you're immersed in that 24-7. You're just like stewing in superhero movies, which for me, I'm a huge fan of them anyway coming in. So it was all right. And that's it. And then I wrote Slugfest and uh, came out in 2017. And Soon, uh, there will be a TV series coming out based on it by um, the Russo brothers who made 
the last Avengers Infinity War and Captain America Civil War and Avengers Endgame. Um, they originally made it for, they made 10 episodes for Quibi, but um, Quibi died. Uh, that terrible, terrible death. So now apparently it's coming out on Roku TV. Uh, that should be coming out later this year. I think in the summer of 2021, but I'm, I'm not exactly sure. So where did your passion for superheroes and kind of that story come from? Probably like everyone else when I was growing up. I mean, it's just everywhere. You know, I have a, I have a young son and he's never seen, you know, he's never seen a Superman movie or a Batman movie necessarily, but he knew about those characters just because they're just so baked into the culture, especially through merchandising and um, some cartoons. But I think that was probably growing up, um, there was a lot of uh, shows like that that I was exposed to, um, The Incredible Hulk TV series and the Super Friends cartoon. And, um, you know, when I was a little bit older, the Batman movie came out and that, that was a big deal. Um, and I also loved superheroes and, and some comic books growing up as well. Um, so it, it was just... I guess that's how my, my interest formed, just sort of being alive in the United States of America in, in the 1970s and 80s. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's that idea that comic book superheroes are the American mythology. You know, it's so ingrained into the culture in this country. It's not just uh, another television show. It's a, it's a heroic journey that many people resonate with. Yeah, it's it's... It's been really interesting to see because when I was growing up, comic books were really on the fringe of culture. Um, there were some mainstream movies, you know, the Batman, the Superman films, but like if you read comic books in the 70s and 80s, it was kind of considered something you kept quiet and something to be embarrassed about. You know, it never really, it never really crossed over into mainstream. And a lot of people would judge you, you know, that there was something wrong with you if you like comic books, um, you know, if you're a full grown adult and now, to see it become what it's become is, is fascinating to me that it, it really is mainstream culture around the world. And, and people who would have never maybe read a comic book when I was growing up have now embraced, you know, all, all of these characters and stories and, and heroes and this kind of storytelling. So I find that, I find that really fascinating and, and cool. And yeah, like you said, it's pretty amazing how um, comic books as a cultural element has grown and involved expanded to what it is today. So let's just go all the way back to where it started. Um, so can, can you tell us about, you know, who are the originators of these pretty iconic comic book companies and how, uh, in your point of view, how have their visions affected their uh, different ways in approaching their stories? Yeah, I guess that's a good question. Um... Well, I mean, DC was the first, DC, not necessarily the first comic book company, but the first, I guess, you know, if you consider Superman the first superhero, which most people do, uh, DC was founded in the mid-1930s mid and um, Superman came out in the later 1930s. And so m most of the comic book companies that followed were really trying to capitalize on the success of Superman because Superman launched you know, kind of like a, a superhero fad. So Marvel came along, you know, in 1939 and... Uh, they were really there just to try to capitalize on the success of Superman. It was kind of a fly-by-night operation in the beginning. Um, but it, it, I think one of the interesting things is the guys, they didn't necessarily found DC, but they were they were there in the very beginning, Harry Donenfeld and, and Jack Leibowitz. Harry Donenfeld was kind of a, 
uh, unsavory character and he was into a lot of, um, you know, he was, he was kind of got caught up in some obscenity cases. He published a lot of unsavory magazines. He has supposedly had organized crime ties. Uh, Jack Leibowitz, similar maybe, but he was more like the accountant. And one of the reasons that they wanted to publish comic books was to kind of um, cleanse their image in a way and get away from these obscenity cases that had followed them. So they wanted to be able to point to these comic books and say, you know, we're, hey, look, we're a family-friendly company. Um, you know, look what we published, these Superman and all these these wholesome superheroes. Um, and so not necessarily because of that, but I mean, that just shows you that who who comic books were aimed at in the very beginning, which was, you know, young children, probably from the ages of six to 12. And that's what the stories, the, who the stories were aimed at and the storytelling sensibilities kind of aligned with that. Um, so, and that's the way that DC was. And that's in part the, one of the problems that they have today is that their, their characters are you know, not as complex as the Marvel characters. They, you know, they started off as just very kind of one-dimensional, good, godlike figures. Superman and Wonder Woman. Batman's a little more complex, but some of the other ones are, are very straight ahead. And so DC over the years has had problems trying to figure out how to update those characters that started this way for this, this modern audience and, and modern storytelling sensibility. Whereas Marvel, you know, they, they did start in 1939. And they had some superheroes early on. Submariner and Captain America came along, um, but you know the the real heroes didn't come along until the '60s. Um, you know, with Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and X-Men and all those. So, because they were created at a later time, they have much more of that modern sensibilities. They're more interesting and conflicted characters. And so that's what I think is really the the big difference between the two companies. Is Marvel's characters are more set in the real world, more complex, more like real people, whereas DC is more um, aimed at a younger audience and, and more just kind of one-dimensional and godlike. Something you mentioned was kind of that the DC superheroes were created for a younger audience and positioned to a younger audience. If you kind of said that to a fan nowadays, they'd be like, DC is for the younger audience and Marvel's for the more mature. Do you feel like there was kind of like an uh, overcorrection here for DC to try to kind of hit those older audiences because they were built in for younger audiences? Probably. You mean with the films? Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, they have struggled for so many years trying to come up with like, what is the modern day take on, on these characters that will get them out of the 1930s and get them out of this kind of one dimensional godlike you know box that they've been in for so long and i do think they they overcorrected into the the whole dark and gritty thing um yeah i i don't know i mean for me superman snapping someone's neck is not something i necessarily want to see him do I, I don't think that's really true to the character as well it just felt it just felt kind of wrong to me um and you know the wonder woman movies don't do much for me either um but you know, I, I understand they have their fans and I, you know, I, I also, I guess I sympathize with DC because it's a real, it is a very difficult task to figure out, you know, what is the tone and the direction forward for these characters. And I, I don't think someone has given it to them yet. For sure. I think it's really, really easy to write them off and say, oh, they should have just done what Marvel did. But the thing that people forget is that these are different characters that came from a different time that have different essential tenants. So kind of 
going back to the origins and the, the building of these companies, you know, DC's known, especially in the early days, to have a much more corporate and straight edge structure, while Marvel was more freeform with Stanley's bullpen and him jumping on tables and things like that. Do you think the way these companies were structured affected the way they told stories early on? Probably, yeah, for sure, especially when it came to to Marvel, because like you said, Marvel was not necessarily a corporate or a company with with prestige or, or big budgets. And so it was much more kind of shoestring around there. And that led to some of the, you know, the things that we like now, you know, famously, Stan Lee, being one of the only people who was really employed in the company was writing most of their titles. And so he did not have enough time to put in the, you know, a full script for every issue of the comic book that came out. And so he would just sit down with the artist and, you know, what's called the Marvel method. And the two of them would just kind of brainstorm what was going to happen in the next issue. And then the artist would go off and draw it the way that the artist wanted to draw it. And a lot of times that served the story a lot better because the artist probably had a better vision of how the story should be told, you know, through images than, than Stan Lee might. And then Stan Lee came back and then, you know, he would write in the dialogue. Um, I, I guess another thing was he also didn't have time to, uh, you know, to, to write so much. And so he started continuing stories, you know, he, he come up with one story and then they would break it into two issues. So that was, I think one of the things that, I personally like best about comic books is, you know, the cliffhanger at the end of every issue. And Marvel does that so well now with the, the films is they have that, you know, the kind of post-credit stinger that makes you want to see what happens next. And so that's another innovation of, of Stan Lee's that, that really just came out of him being overworked, but it, it proved to be great for the medium in the end. Yeah. Uh, that idea with, you know, DC, they had their chiefdoms every character had like their own editing team while Marvel is so much more freeform Stanley touched a lot of fans was able to connect a lot of stories and leave a lot of those cliffhangers I love that we can see that in mirrored in the movies and that that idea that these comic elements that are core to Marvel's style the Marvel method led to these really successful movie elements yeah it's been cool yeah that's true and, and you mentioned DC and they have their, they, their, their editors were very powerful, like you mentioned, and the editors would control one group of characters, you know, one editor controlled Superman, another editor controlled Batman. And a lot of times that they, those editors did not necessarily work so well together. And so they would not want to lend their characters to the other person's book. And so unlike Marvel, where, you know, Captain America would show up um, in this issue or Spider-Man would show up in the Fantastic Four comics and it was building this whole um, kind of cohesive universe. DC did not have that for a long time in part because of the way that, as you mentioned, the, the editorial offices were set up and the editorial, the guys, the editors were so territorial that they did not want to lend out their characters. And so that's a, that was another plus that Marvel had, you know, and for years people, especially in the 60s, just love the idea of that shared universe you know, that that reluctance to change uh that reluctance even in the early days to steal from marvel because marvel was kind of that that young little hipster company that they looked at badly in the corner it you know it took them a while it took them a few decades um, to kind of figure out what they were doing i guess it was only in the late you know, in the late 70s, they basically things got so bad that they had they would they hit rock bottom and they had no choice but to start taking chances. So it was really 
it was really the market and economics that forced them to make creative choices that corporately they were too afraid to do, you know, back in the 1960s and 70s. And you mentioned uh, the impact or influence of the market and economics at the time, uh, which leads us to the, the next question that I'm very interested in, uh, which is, I wonder from your perspective, how have some of the superhero characters we've seen changed and evolved to reflect the society and the ideals at the time? So uh, I think an example of that would be Captain America, uh, who is a character that came out, you know, in the 1940s where there was a world war going on and uh, he was kind of the ideological symbol uh, at the time against the, the, you know, the Nazi ideology, stuff like that. But then uh, when you look at uh, Captain America now in the MCU, that's probably a lot different. Yeah, I think that's a good example, Captain America, because you know, as you mentioned, he he was launched, uh, you know, during World War II, and famously, the first issue of Captain America has him punching out Hitler. So, I mean, it was not, it was not a subtle kind of, kind of dig at what was going on in the world. You know, it was right, it was right out there, and um, uh, you know, he was popular for a while, and he, his his popularity sort of faded. And I think one of Stanley's genius and and maybe partially due to his laziness was he re, you know he brought back old characters and so in the 60s you know he, he reached back and and brought back captain america you know it's the the idea that the avengers find him frozen in ice and so then he has a completely new persona and and new function in the story which is you know he's kind of a man out of time which is i guess what you see now in the films which i think works so well you know everyone he knows is dead and you know he's kind of he has that sadness about him but he's also from another time and has kind of th those values as well and he doesn't necessarily fit in in the modern world so i think that's something kind of genius that they did with him um you know to kind of flip a character that way um was a really smart thing to do uh the other one i can think of is, is batman you know when he first started out in the late 30s he was I mean, he was a pretty dark character. You know, he carried a gun. He would kill people. Um, but then, you know, as the, as the years marched on, as comic books kind of got in trouble for for you know being bad for kids, they, you know, they turned Batman into a much more kiddie friendly character, and he had kind of more wacky adventures. Then, when you go through the '50s, you know, he's got all sorts of weird stories about you know, UFOs and whatever was going on in the 50s and then the 60s, you know, he kind of picks up a little bit on on some of that culture. And then, you know, they have to, they basically have to reinvent him. So then, you know, come the 80s, when, when you know, comic book readers are growing up and things are getting a little darker, you know, you have the Dark Knight Returns come out and then Batman gets, you know, kind of a gritty makeover, which I guess persists to this day. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to look at what they can do with these characters and how much leeway there is to kind of stretch what they can do with, with um, you know, the kinds of stories they can tell about them while it's still being the same character. Absolutely. And bringing things to where we are now a little bit, um, right now, if you ask the average person about Marvel or DC, they'd probably immediately think about the cinematic universes first. Mm -hmm. 
Um, how do you think those this kind of cinematic humorous formats, uh, whether in the form of the MCU team up movies or crossover events in some of the DC uh, TV shows, how, how has this format mirrored um, the comic universe? Yeah, I like I like that um, that it does. It anyone who grew up reading comic books or has read comic books for a long time recognizes all the tricks. You know, they they're using them all, and it's funny to see audiences who only follow things through the movies not recognize these these tricks. You know, Superman dies or something, and and everyone who's ever read a comic book is like, yeah, well, yeah, and now he's coming back next film or whatever. Whereas people who who don't read comic books are like, oh man, the Superman's dead. Or like you mentioned, the crossover, you know, the crisis on infinite earths. That was the, you know, the classic of comic book publishing is, you know, every year, every two years to, you know, bring all the heroes together in this, you know, giant gangbang event that would get people, you know, to really part with their money. You know, people who were just fans of those individual characters would then have to buy the crossover. And I think the CW does that really well. Um, and then, you know, we talked about with the Marvel movies, the cliffhangers and the post-credit scenes and, you know, characters crossing over from one movie to the other. They've just, they've really taken the playbook of work, work so well in publishing and are now using it for the films. And I mean, for me, it's really, it's great to see that those tricks still work. That's a good commentary on the importance and essentialness that comic books have played on these movies a lot of people think oh they're just the characters they just took the characters no it's the 80 years of history of time-tested techniques and character traits and things that people have resonated with that allows these movies to introduce such rich characters because history of building these characters yeah i think that's a really good point um you know if you think of like the average sort of blockbuster, you know, maybe the person who's hired to write the script has a few a few months to do it and then that's it. Whereas with a lot of these comic book movies, they're able to pull from 80 years or decades worth of stories and they've already had kind of an R&D lab with these writers and artists putting out the comic books to see what works, what resonates with the fans, which of these stories stick the landing. Um, and so they really do have a whole, you know, a vein of storytelling to pull from that other blockbuster movies don't. Um, and that, you know, famously in the 1970s when Jeanette Kahn was hired at DC, you know, they were close to canceling all the comic books. Um, and you know, she argued with the upper management. She's like, you'd be stupid to do that. It doesn't cost that much to publish these comics. And what we're doing is building stories and IP that can be mined later, you know, for movies or TV or video games or whatever you want to do at very low cost to you. I mean, I, I hate to say that's a good idea. It sounds kind of cynical to exploit these stories in this way, but I mean, she was brilliant in that regard and that's exactly what they've done. So, you know, instead of hiring somebody to write an Ant-Man from, movie from scratch or whatever, they know exactly what works with that character. Um, and so they can pull from that or the, Secret Invasion crossover that's coming up in the in the TV um, world, or just you know everything that they've done so far has has pulled a lot of elements from the comics, and so I think the comics are so critical to the success of of what's going on. For sure, and you know one of the things I love most about this industry is that it's a uh, is the community, the fandoms, and we we've seen the fandoms play very key roles in the movie universes as well, especially with kind of release the Snyder cut 
things like that, the fans driving stories. And I think this comes all the way back to Stan Lee's bullpen bulletins, him trying to bring these communities in and kind of collaboratively get people involved in these stories. And that's kind of the resiliency again. That's why it's lasted 80 years is because no other medium can bring people in like that and build those fandoms, those communities. Yeah, the fans are real hardcore. I was shocked by the Snyder Cut thing. I never, ever thought that was going to come out. But then, you know, you tweet about something enough, you get your own movie these days. And speaking of fans, how have they benefited from uh, this rivalry between Marvel and DC that's been going on for so long and now at such a high um, scale? And yeah, I think... Yeah, I think it's always good to have two main players in an industry, you know, Coke and Pepsi and, and, you know, some of the other ones, Microsoft and Apple. I think that they, obviously it's better than a monopoly, but I think when the companies are so similar, they sort of push each other and make each other better. You know, no company is allowed to rest on its laurels or just keep doing what it's been doing. It's forced to change and innovate and try to beat the other company. So I think that's been happening definitely since the 1960s with Marvel and DC and now more than ever with the the movies. To close out every uh, one of our episodes, uh, we have this segment called Suspenders. Um, It works like this. Um, we ask you a, a random fun question uh, that's unrelated to anything, and you can give us any random answer you feel like. Okay. Our question of the day is, if your five-year-old self suddenly found himself inhabiting your current body, what would your five-year-old self do first? Man. It's hard for me to think back. Um, nap, probably. It's one of the things I miss as an adult, is being able to just sleep in the middle of the day or in the back of the car or in an airplane. It is a real skill <laughs> at this <laughs> day and age. I see people like full asleep on the subway. How do you do that? I wish I had that <laughs> talent. Just like people stepping over them, the doors opening and closing, the wheels screeching, and they're just like straight up snoring. I wish I had that real skill. confidence. <laughs> it, does, it does take a real confidence. Yeah, this is what I look like when I'm asleep and I don't care if anyone sees me or films me. Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the podcast where we discuss and analyze some of the key storytelling learnings we got from this week's expert storyteller. This week, we had Reed Tucker. And man, I'm so excited. He was such a great guest. Absolutely. And let's just dive straight in uh, into our learnings from our conversation. I think the first thing um, is the significance and the importance of IP development. So Reed told us a lot about how uh, Marvel and DC were able to accumulate experience and popularity from writing and publishing all these comic book characters over so many decades. When the, the MCU first came out, I was this was something really new and exciting uh, and unprecedented uh, in the movie industry. But as Reed said, 
there are a lot of、uh, tricks and techniques in the cinematic universe that had already been tested out when they were doing the comic book crossovers and team ups. That they、uh, they have just repurposed into movie productions. The comic book phase, in essence, was really low cost ways for these IP、uh, owners and brands to test out what、uh, kind of stories works and what doesn't work,、uh, so that they're able to have this knowledge and build on that to capitalize off of it moving forward. And that's the uniqueness of comic book storytelling in the cinematic form. You're taking a built-in audience and developed characters, and you're telling a story in a new light. So, I mean, that branches into my next learning was corporate structures. You hear stories of Stanley jumping on chairs and tables and controlling narratives and talking about the characters, and it was a very free-form creative environment. While DC at the time was much more siloed and chiefdoms. Well, Stan Lee, because he had such control over all the characters, were able to move characters between books and have them interact. And he created this idea of the shared universe, and that's fascinating because what that tells us, Kev, is that the comic books were a reflection of the company because DC was always very separate, very godlike, very chiefdoms, and Marvel was that shared universe of the bullpen where characters could move. And as you can see in the movie, in the cinematic universe, that's truly paying dividends. Well, that's gonna do it. This has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on all audio platforms and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at LSPTPod.